Before we jump into today's episode, let's give a shout out to our sponsor, Jane, a clinic management software and EMR. Whether you're just starting to do your research or you've been contemplating switching your software for a while now, the Jane team understands that the process can feel intimidating. That's why their goal is to provide you with all the onboarding resources you need to make the switch as soon as possible. Jane offers a personalized call to set up your account, a free data import, and a variety of online resources to get you up and running quickly. And if you ever need a helping hand along the way, you'll have access to unlimited phone, email, and chat support included in your Jane subscription. If you're interested in learning more, book a one-on-one demo at jane.app switch. And if you decide to make the switch, don't forget to use the code HEAL1MO, that's HEAL1MO, at sign up to receive a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Hey, I'm Cal. Hey, and I'm Kathy. We're the co-hosts of the Heal Well Healthcare Podcast Interdisciplinary, and we're here to uh, invite you to become patrons of our podcast. We're going to team up with the platform called Patreon to invite you even to become an even more active member of this community. So we've got a couple of levels, uh, depending on your interest and uh, and passion about this particular topic and how much you love me and Kathy, perhaps. Uh, so. Uh, the first level, you can become an official patron. It's $5 a month, and it allows you to have early access to episodes and, of course, to know that you are part of making sure this podcast keeps happening. Kathy, tell them what else they could win. Oh, well, level two is called All Access Patron, which gives you early access to our episodes and access to bonus episodes Boom. for $10 a month. And then we've got the VIP patron. So you get all those other things, early access, bonus episodes, and then a monthly, what they call AMAs, which are ask me anything, which means that you get uh, unfettered one-on-one-ish access uh, to me and or, or both uh, Kathy uh, to ask us anything, uh, something that came up on the podcast, something that you're uh, trying to blow up in your own community and how we can help you, whatever it might be. So uh, become a patron and help us get the word out and build our community and Thanks already for the love that you're bringing to interdisciplinary and heal well and making the world a better place. We love the love and we love you right back. Hello, I'm Cal Cates and uh, I'm going solo this week. Kathy Bryan is doing whatever British Columbians do on Thursday, April Fool's Day. Uh, so she's not with us today, but um, this is another episode and another season of Interdisciplinary. Welcome back to season two. In this podcast, massage therapy educators, practitioners, and positive deviants, usually Kathy Ryan and me, Cal Cates, use research, science, experience, and humor to explore the broad landscape of healthcare through an interdisciplinary lens. We have honest and uncomfortable conversations about topics like access, racism, death, ableism, equity, you name it. If it makes you squirm, we're talking about it on this show. Um, please be sure to like us and share us and use all your social media might to get the word out about the show and uh, why you listen. Leave us some reviews, leave us some stars and spread the word. Thanks for listening. And of course, the moment that you've all been waiting for this week's pun. Yeah. So over the weekend, I got in a fight with one, three, five, seven, and nine. The odds were against me. <laughs> Oh, so, um, <laughs> yeah, if you, if as a guest, you don't laugh, we just stop the show right there. So <laughs> you're in Jamil. I um, thought that was funny. 
<laughs> so today I'm super excited to have our first guest of season two with us, uh, Jamil Rivers, who is really, uh, I feel like, best described as a powerhouse. But I'll uh, let Jamil tell you a, a bit more about herself and her organization, the Chrysalis Initiative, um, the places that she uh, is engaged in the world and improving the experience of being a human are uh, innumerable. So I will not insult her by trying to list them myself. But welcome so much. And thanks for being here, Jamil. Ah, thank you so much. I'm so honored, you know, Yay. to be the first guest on season two during my birthday month. <laughs> you know, I got to celebrate the whole month. That's right. So, um, yeah, my name is Jamil Rivers. Um, I uh, am the founder and CEO of the Chrysalis Initiative, which is focused on addressing disparities um, in breast cancer um, outcomes and, um, and improving health equity. I am. I was diagnosed with uh, stage four metastatic um, breast cancer in 2018, so from the start. And it was really shocking, didn't really have any strong breast cancer history in my family or um, overt um, signs or symptoms and was already a caregiver to a colon cancer survivor husband. So I was just not anticipating or expecting to have my own cancer diagnosis. But um, on my journey, I knew that um, I still needed to work. And of course, everyone is on my benefits and all of that. So I developed a curriculum on my own. And um, it was just checking off all the boxes, making sure that, um, you know, uh, I could get the best care possible. And also, I got involved with advocacy right away. And um, during that, I was really shocked that in 2021, uh, Black women die uh, from breast cancer at a 40% higher rate than white women. We're also 71% more likely to die from breast cancer. And so, of course, being in um, the Philadelphia region, we're like the leading um, resource on eds and meds and bioinnovation and biotech. So that just didn't make any sense to me. And as I'm, you know, uh, doing my research and getting involved as an advocate, um, the going narrative was always that the reason why Black women are dying at such a higher rate, it's just due to socioeconomic issues. It's social determinants of health. It's um, poverty. Um, access to insurance, transportation, obesity, comorbidities. This, this was kind of like the going narrative. However, um, you know, as I was, you know, going through treatment and managing my breast cancer, um, other women started coming into my chemo room <laughs> and said, hey, you seem to be doing okay. Can you share what you're doing and what you know? And so I started mentoring and coaching other women, it, pretty much using the same guidance, same curriculum that I de developed in order to just keep yourself on track. And they were all thriving, you wow. know, all, <laughs> so I'm like, I have something here, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and also, um, you know, with the black women that I was helping, there really wasn't anything specific to our unique challenges with breast cancer, meaning, you know, it's not factoring in our day to day, how side effects in particular affect us differently. And um, I wasn't, Based on, and I know this is a small sampling of, you know, not that I'm helping all the Black women in, in the world with breast cancer, but <laughs> I was not coming across that it was the issue of um, uh, not having insurance or not having income or not wanting to participate in clinical trials. Yeah. This was not the issue. What I kept coming up again and again was that uh, they weren't 
offered standard of care. Yeah. And so why would then they not be offered standard of care? Yeah. <laughs> and so um, from the curriculum that I created for patients, I then decided, okay, you know what? I created a um, equity curriculum for health systems and cancer centers. Um, and now we're also providing the same equity assessment for clinical trials and just doing my research, being more involved, working with other organizations um, prior to the Chrysalis Initiative being a formal nonprofit, me just doing this on my own, um, found that if you address the bias and the racism in the care setting, yeah, that actually improves outcomes for black and brown women. And it really is very simple when you think about it. It's just, just provide standard of care without the racism and bias getting in the way. Yeah. (laughs) And to have some accountability and visibility to ensure that that happens and understanding and acknowledging that we all have biases, um, but you have to address them and not allow those biases to um, cause harm to the patients. And so, it was really successful with the small pilots um, that I did with um, several organizations. So American Cancer Society, um, Susan G. Coleman, Living Beyond Breast Cancer, and really, really successful. They even raised a lot of money from. Yeah, right. <laughs> a lot of money. Right, right. And so I was thinking to myself, well, instead of this just being a one and done, I could do this every day since the need is so great. Yeah. Um, formalized um, the Chrysalis Initiative as a formal 501c3 in late 2020, and we have a board and all of that. And so, um, and we just got, we started right in. So we now provide the one-on-one coaching for patients, um, all ages, all races, all stages, um, really focused on those disparate groups. So basically, it's a one-on-one direct service wraparound approach to make sure that, you know, these women are not just you know, on their own when it comes to what they don't know. How do they um, identify what is quality care and what care they should receive? Um, And we're matching them with a coach with a similar treatment history, um, highly knowledgeable um, patient uh, navigators, uh, coaches that are living with breast cancer themselves or impacted by breast cancer. And the knowledge that they have um, is just immense. So they're just making sure you know, going by off of that Chrysalis curriculum, making sure that these patients are staying off on track um, and are not falling off track to continue with care. And then we also have, um, we offer the same um, resource to hospitals, cancer centers, health systems, and clinical trials for that care coordination for the patients. But we also um, have the equity assessment. So if they're going to adopt the Chrysalis model, and become a chrysalis center, you know, and there's various ways that we can do this, but the idea is to look at a specific set of data. um, And we also set up, you know, uh, qualitative data with individual surveying and interviews and things like that. And we can really get to the root of what is causing these disparities at that particular center. And lo and behold, it's always the underlying racism and bias. It's not due to lack. I mean, yes, those barriers can come up, but the leading evidence um, shows that the largest contributor to to these disparities is the racism and bias. And it's kind of like you have to deal with that. Yeah. In order to improve these outcomes, so that we don't have these disparities anymore. So that's what we're doing. <laughs> wow. Well, that's you know. it. okay. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> no. So, I mean, I feel like, I mean, this, this topic comes up in no matter what guest we have, because this is unconscious bias, racism, white supremacy. This is actually yeah. at the root of most of the problems. Yeah, most problems. And so <laughs> if you, like, I'm curious about, I think it's hard for white providers, white patients, white yeah. people to understand what, I mean, I know that there are still wide uh, misconceptions in the health yes. community about how black people experience pain, yes. how they experience pain. Like, so can you, like, what are like the top three places where patients, black patients with breast cancer are, and I think when you say they're not being offered standard of care, like yeah. what's happening is poor care by omission that like, like providers aren't suggesting things that they suggest to white patients because of assumptions right. that they don't know they're making. Exactly. Yep. That's totally right. So the biggest, biggest one I think is, you know, how you, which treatment is identified is the most, is the most important as far as your care is um, for your specific type of breast cancer. And we know now the more targeted, the better. Okay. We have to understand yeah. what's driving that the breast cancer in order to treat it. Yeah. Sometimes that's subtype, but you have to have that genetic and genomic testing too yeah. in order to see if there are any particular maybe um, uh, predominant mutations or markers that you can target. And a lot of times, you know, these disparities are caused by the most targeted treatment not being provided to patients. And so um, sometimes it could be as simple as they're HER2 positive and they're not receiving Herceptin as their treatment. I wow. know. <laughs> it's like, how does that happen? How does um, that happen? It seems right. like negligence. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then there's also um, just the genomic testing and genetic testing, meaning Let's make sure like we're not just looking at it where the that information is not provided too. And a lot of times when women are referred to us, they're in crisis or um, they're now having aggressive disease and the um, cancer has now become resistant. A lot of that is due to um, the best treatment wasn't identified from the beginning. And you yeah. can really find the best one if that additional testing is provided. Also, um, even just to get that um, diagnostic workup to get in rural and have that intake as a patient. So black women, we tend to be diagnosed younger. Yeah. And so the reason why we tend to be diagnosed younger and we're also diagnosed with more aggressive disease is because usually we're under the age of 40 when we're presenting with symptoms. So we go to the doctor, we say, hey, I found a lump. They're like, ah, black women don't get breast cancer. You're yeah. too young to get breast cancer. And so they send them on their merry way, say, oh, you know, nothing to worry about here. And it's just a fight just to get the mammogram, just to get the initial screening if they're under the age of 40. And so sending women away and then six months to a year later, we now have metastatic breast cancer. That could have which, been stage one or stage two. If exactly. Yeah. Yes. So that's another big part of it. Um, also, just um, the information with... Um, uh, linking people to resources or providing information on clinical trials. I always hear all the time, oh, Black people distrust the uh, medical system. There is some truth to that. It's yeah, sure. valid. Right. But what about the uh, bias that's associated with not 
um, providing access to clinical trials. How about we deal with that too? And then you can't just have diversity in clinical trials. You have to have equity as well. You can't just say, hey, we've checked off our list. We have tons (laughs) and tons of Black people in this clinical trial. (laughs) So you have to also think about, okay, is there care coordination? Is there proper information and education provided in order for them to adhere to all the regimen? of this clinical trial and what resources do you have in place to make sure that they're just not, you know, trailing in the wind when a challenge comes up? And then if they're not, what is the information as far as are they on the control group? How much information are they going to have access to? What happens if they're not viable on this particular treatment? You know, I have so many um, situations and scenarios where um, a Black woman is a part of a clinical trial. That's great. But then what happens when that treatment doesn't work anymore? Making sure they're just not tossed aside after they're not a viable subject within this clinical trial anymore. Making sure that that follow-up and um, that warm handoff and that care coordination is happening as well. And usually these are just standard when it comes to white patients and not being done with Black patients. So, um, and I mean, it's already a challenge even with white patients too, don't get me wrong, because we do provide, you know, support to white patients as well. And with the one uh, study that we did, they found that our support is the equivalent of 17 different individuals that a (laughs) cancer patient would have to chase down and follow up. It's a full-time job. Yeah, to have cancer. And so um, just imagine with uh, if it's hard with someone with resources and all the privilege in the world, yeah. how challenging it is for a person to be uh, potentially receiving bias in their care or becoming victim of that and not knowing how to navigate through that. A lot of and when you think about why it's so important for us to grow and continue to um, work with and support the women that we meet. Um, if I'm a black woman, I go to my doctor. He tells me, um, you know, you have no more options. Yeah. That's it. Get on your, you know, pretty much get your get affairs in order. Nothing I could do for you. Um, sometimes that may actually be the case, right? But uh, we find time and time again, that's not the case. It's literally just someone exhibiting bias. And it's just, we again, we can't psychoanalyze, right. but at the same time, okay, I think the, the going thing, if you think about just society, is that, um, and, you know, I've been on this whole genealogy kick since COVID, uh-huh. so it's so interesting to me that our income levels, our living situation in this country, it hasn't really changed too much. Like, you would think that, you know, the civil rights movement and even after Reconstruction, that it really hasn't changed too much. I mean, we're pretty much, we have more technology, but as far as, you know, the dynamic between white citizens and Black citizens in America, not much has changed. I mean, it's a little bit more challenging, I think, for the KKK and things yeah. like that. To, <laughs> to, you know, I don't think that they could knock on my door and kidnap me like yeah. they could. You know, it's a little bit more challenging. But today, the racism is more systemic and subtle. You know, it's very procedural. It's underlying. It's more so assumptions. And we do find that a lot of our um, health systems, they kick, they push back on us a lot. That's what I was going to ask you. Like, how do you, who, who reaches out and says, we want our facility to be chrysalis and 
And right. what happens when you get to that administrator level of like, um, oh, it, wait, it, no, it, I don't want to do this myself. Right, right. <laughs> it is a it is a mixed bag because um, sometimes there is like a valid person on the inside that's like, you know what, we're throwing all the spaghetti on the wall, trying to, you know, we have all this, we have town halls about equity and inclusion and diversity and addressing disparities and we have a whole committee and it's in our mission statement and it's like we're doing all this stuff but our numbers and outcomes are still bad and for a long time it's just been acceptable for folks to just point to hey this is um poverty it's social economic issues nothing to see here there's nothing we can do about it right, right? Yep. <laughs> other than just providing more supportive services, but not dealing with the underlying racism. And so what's interesting is a lot of the white healthcare professionals that are kind of, and I, we always say these are blind spots. This is sure. how we characterize yep. it. Yep. And um, it's interesting because um, they'll say, I think a lot of people think that racism is only if they're calling people the n-word yes or if um you know they're attacking a person or being mean or discriminating against them not knowing that um yeah if you're not offering the same level of if you're providing substandard care yes due to bias that's informing your decisions that's racism that's racism yeah and so it is educational for some folks where, and these are, you know, of course, professionals. And, you know, they look at me, they're like, well, you're just a patient. Like, <laughs> right, right. You know, I'm sure. And it's just amazing that um, they've just never, it, it, and it's funny to me what always, what they always say is once you see, you can't unsee. Correct. So once they get this um, education and they see like how it's applied, because the hard level data, you can kind of chalk that up to say, oh, it's due to social economic issues. Yeah. But once we have the focus groups and we're able to present um, the information, like it's specific data that we're looking to and metrics and it's measurable, where we'll then have a certain level of sampling where if you're having tons and tons of Black patients that are, are experiencing this bias, um, during their experience with their uh, with your care delivery at your center, this is more than just um, uh, circumstantial. This is a trend. This is yeah. something that you have to deal with. And, um, you know, it is definitely enlightening, I think, and surprising that, you know, they're thinking, well, how is this possible? But I always say it's very risky, too. Like, think about these big NCI NCCN centers really focused on disparities, right? And all of their public facing, you yeah. know, information. And then you have doctors that are in practitioners um, and healthcare professionals that are operating in a silo. Yes. So causing harm to patients, you're, <laughs> you have no idea. Right. And um, there's no accountability. So imagine if you were going to like a mechanic and, you know, it was like, this particular mechanic was just horrible <laughs> with the service that they were providing. After a while, nobody wants to go to that mechanic. Right. You know, it's like, this might be a franchise that everybody trusts, but there's this one particular, you know, mechanic that is just jacking up everybody's cars. This is the, I find this time and time again, where if someone gives me a call and tells me that they're having a particular experience at a hospital, I could almost guess who the doctor is. And that's bad, you know? Right. Well, and I think that the, the other, the unpopular thing to, to acknowledge is that 
to do otherwise is to break with white solidarity. Mm. And, and that, you know, as white providers, white administrators, white people, yeah, we're really aware that like to, to really call this out and hold our fellow white providers accountable is to break out of the club. And yeah, what do you risk when you do yeah. that? And yep. I mean, this is one of the biggest problems with breaking down a systemic problem like racism is yeah. a lot then of when people you, have to go out on a limb. Yeah. And when you think about it, um, you know, how it's, it's challenging to say, okay, I'm going to now shut down a system that has benefited me right. and my family for generations. Yes. Yes. <laughs> how, how, you know. I can, I can see why that would be a challenge. And we can't, but we can't imagine that there's enough, you know, that there's this idea that if I, if I give you the same, then I won't have what I need. And that's the other thing that's interesting because we're able to show that when you actually make sure that everybody gets quality care and the bias is not getting away, it actually is revenue generating for the health system. It reduces their cost overall yeah <laughs> their patients have better outcomes yeah yeah <laughs> how about that right well, and I think like when you talk about socioeconomic differences and you talk about um you know some of the patients we work with here in in DC you know no as a hospital I can't help that person make more money or you know sort of climb up the ladder but if I understand that because of where they live or what their life is like, they have a hard time getting to their appointments. I can address that. Yeah. I can like, there are logistical issues that also lead to crappy care that are related to these systemic issues that you can address in a a direct way. Totally. And then also understanding that, you know, one of the other things that uh, I'll hear from um, some white uh, clinicians is that, well, you just can't help who you connect with. Yeah, you can. You connect with some. <laughs> you wow. connect. With, you connect with some patients more than others, you know. Um, and it's like, well, if it's informing, you know, if bias is getting in the way where you're not able to make sure that that patient can speak to their treatment, what type of breast cancer they have, how yeah. that treatment is working, um, and that patient clinician communication has to be strong and solid. If you need to pull in support do that, but you have to make sure that they understand how to move forward with their care because this is, you know, ongoing um, and to make sure that they could get the best possible outcomes and don't just chalk it up to, up oh, they're uneducated um, or they're not interested in their care. And it's interesting because I say, I always say you can't have it both ways. You can't say that, you know, Black women are um, you know, uneducated, not interested in their care, scared of clinical trials, they're not going to be compliant with their care, um, and all of that, but then um, say that they have to be assertive and be project managers slash paralegals when it comes to yeah. <laughs> no, right. managing their care. Like, uh, which one is it? You yeah, know? right. Uh, it's whichever one means I don't have to work harder. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> like this is, I, you get a lot of, we get a lot of pushback to say the status quo is fine. Right. You know, and the only thing that really is going to move the needle, I think is, and it's interesting because, you know, a lot of the reason why health systems buy in and opt in to work with us is because we have, you know, other, you know, foundations and uh, the government and um, pharma that's interested in 
this improving. So there's a revenue sharing component where the hospital receives revenue if they decide to do these small pilots and yeah. it's revealing, right? Um, but then you also have it where um, there's that competitive issue. So, you know, they're all in competition with each other. So they'll see one health system, oh, they're they're doing this? We, yeah. well, we, we might have to look at, right? Exactly. So, but really, other than that, there isn't any, and if it doesn't have anything to do with their bottom line or their brand or their accreditation, it's totally fine to kind of keep things the way that they are because they can kind of chalk that up to, hey, it's social economic issues, nothing we can do here. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you, um, in terms of the curriculum for patients, what uh, what kind of feedback do you get from the folks who have used the curriculum in terms of what is most useful for them or sort of what what are you proudest of in the curriculum in terms of how it translates into better care? Yeah, I think we were, what is, it's so simple where it just keeps people on track with their care. And I think the concept is that it has to be care coordinated and that there's a team, meaning that they have a thought partner. They have someone to kind of help them with solutions. And a lot of times patients, when they're going to um, cancer centers now, um, they get a lot of paperwork and resources and it's put in a folder, if that, and they have to do all the chase down and follow up themselves. But um, we always joke with the Chrysalis Initiative, say, we'll get in your business as much as you allow us to. Yeah, (laughs) right. Right. And so it ends up being where, you know, things that they thought were impossible initially, just because they just had no frame of reference. A lot of times Black women also don't have any other Black breast cancer um, survivors that they're connected to or mm-hmm. have in their family, anybody that they yeah. can kind of reach out to, to, to have these conversations. Um, there are like helplines and things like that, that you can call um, in the breast cancer landscape right now. But um, it's so still disconnected. It's not um, specific to their situation. It's more so kind of like a broad general, um, here's some information on this and that. But when you're matched with the chrysalis coach, it really is specific to your situation. So we're, um, of course, referring back to the chrysalis curriculum um, and checking off all the boxes to make sure things are good. And so we're bringing things to your attention that you might not have even thought of. Right. And a lot of our um coaches are more knowledgeable than oncology teams a lot of times. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when it comes to black women because they're just not familiar with our day-to-day lives, what's motivating us. So part of what we also do with the health systems is we um, instead of being that 42-year-old black woman with metastatic breast cancer, we provide um, and we include in the um, electronic record their story. So, and I mean, really, I think a lot of the issues that we have with just Black America and white America is, you know, we're not, it's not, we're not registering as human, you know, we're the other. And so until that humanization happens where it's like, yes, I'm a person, I, you know, I'm a mother, I'm a sister, I'm a daughter, I'm a friend, you know, until that registers, um, you're just not going to, uh, it's, it's easier for the bias to get in the way. We'll be right back. Do you want to change the world? So do we. Join Healwell this September in Arlington, Virginia, when we host the event to remember. There will be classes and conversations. There will be old friends and new ones. And yes, 
there will be dancing. Come to Healwell Homecoming and let's keep this ball rolling. Yeah. Well, and I, I wonder too about um, as a, as a black woman who's like looking for support and certainly in the world of COVID that winds up being all, all remote at the moment, but I, I can imagine that there would be a fear of experiencing racism in a support group, unless it was a specifically support group for black women. That's interesting to me. I think, um, you know, um, black women, most of the time we're used to not being, um, you know, the majority, we're used to being the minority in most groups that we go into. And so I think we usually give folks the benefit of the doubt. So it's interesting always to me where so many black women early on in their care are just not even um, familiar that they're being, um, that they're experiencing bias in their care. Yeah. You know, and then it's also very scary for us to hop around or to, it's almost like, well, let me stay with the devil I know. Right. Even if I'm not getting the better care, you know? And it's so important for them to be able to advocate for themselves. And it really is power when you think about it, because knowledge is power. Once they, and it's so funny, we always notice that um, we now provide pins for our um, participants, because after a while, I think the word is going to get out like, oh, well, these patients are highly knowledgeable, but we know it's. That after a while, right, right. After a while, you know, their doctors are more attentive. They're like spending more time with them. It's almost like they're on their P's and Q's because of the fact that, you know, we're telling them what questions to ask and what answers, you know, based based on those answers, what questions to follow up with. And so it's really showing like, oh, they're on, they know their stuff. Yeah. (laughs) You know. Do you have, do you have chrysalis participants? Is that what you call them? What, What do you call them? Yeah, it's participants. So do you, because I'm imagining white, I'll just say white male providers having a knowledgeable black woman in front of them and being like, I hate this. This is the stereotypical, quote, uppity woman. And I actually am going to be even less available, amenable, whatever. Do you have feedback from participants? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. My doctor did not like that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And it's like, I'm the doctor. Who do you think you are? Yeah. Um, I know. And it's, it's also interesting when we do um, the interviews with some of the um, white paternalistic, you know, um, doctors that have this view um, and we'll say, well, why didn't you um, share that information about the clinical trial, knowing that that would have been beneficial to her? Oh, I could tell by the highlights in her hair that she wouldn't have been able to go. <laughs> wow. I know. It's just like, <laughs> what? What do you know about highlights that I don't know? <laughs> right. And it's just like, it's just so jarring that just little things like that, because she has highlights in her hair, that that would tell you that, yeah, I'm not even going to waste my time what? sharing that. I know. So yeah. that's what we're dealing with. And the whole thing is look, we're people, this is healthcare. People have healthcare in it. We get it. I think now in 2021, we understand that with all the integration, with all the assimilation, a, a lot of these ideologies are not going to change, right? right? My whole thing is your racism, that's your business. Don't let it disrupt my life. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, that's, yeah. you know, hey, 
you know, maybe it's uh, traditional. I don't know what to tell you. However, I don't need that interfering with my life. So there has to be some accountability there. You yeah. can't just have people causing harm in this way and just do it willy nilly in a silo. And it's just, there's no oversight. Like, hello, there has to be that, um, you know, that workflow, that visibility and yeah. accountability in these instances where, you know, there's this deviation from what that standard of care should be. And you have this person that just has this full on autonomy to just say, eh, you know, she's single, you know, right. doesn't have any kids. She's not married or I don't think she can afford it or yeah. just, you know, running the mill assumptions that are causing harm. This is life or death here. Yeah. And yeah. And I mean, the unconsciousness of it, I think is what's so scary is that it yes. really is so like what I, I don't think I treated that person any differently. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and oh, then yeah. what's interesting also is that um, a lot of things just kind of how one um, doctor was saying, well, we just connect with some patients more so. Right. And so, yeah, I'm going to make sure that, you know, I connected them to that resource and I connected them to the palliative care. Well, did you do that with the black patients? No. Um, and you haven't done that at all with any of your black patients. And it's actually causing where they're receiving substandard care. And it's, mm, you know, well, I'm not, well, that's not um, a requirement for me to do that. So it's, um, you see what I'm saying? Yes. And so, yeah. Well, And I wonder too, I mean, there's so, so much about how humans communicate is nonverbal. And I, yes. you know, oh. like I get, I imagine a clinician even saying like, so there's this clinical trial. And then the, the look on the face of the patient is read by the clinician as I'm not interested. I don't understand something. And then the clinician goes, Oh, never mind." You know, right. This Instead is a big of, area you know, too. Oh, good. Because, yeah. Yeah. So this is a big area too, where we provide support to, you know, the health systems to say, understanding that those social cues, you know, because a lot of times just the mannerisms and expressions and dialects of black women, it's interpreted by white people as hostile or in, in unengaged, right? And yeah. so we unpack that and we're able to show, no, actually, this is what you do in that situation. This is how you make sure that those assumptions are not getting in the way, right? That bias, yeah. um, how to pull in support in order to improve that communication and trust, because that it really has to be solid and on, on, on point for that patient to receive the care that they need. But it's so it's so amazing to me how that breakdown in communication can then just really disrupt and steer off track that continuum of care from the onset. Yeah, and once you take that wrong fork, you're yes. going in the wrong direction. Exactly. Ugh. I so, know. <laughs> no, you guys, you have, am I making this up that you have an app that somehow improves transparency? Well, it will be on the market in October. It's still in development. Okay. Um, but that's the whole point. It increases capacity for the patients okay. where they're connected to their coach. Okay. Um, and also the insights of the curriculum, how they're responding and engaging in the app will also provide that insight to the coaches and to us. Um, and then it basically flags those vulnerable areas that we need to intervene on. 
also provides the insight to the health system once they opt in. So their practitioners have access to the app and can access their patients because a lot of the nurse navigators, oncology teams, um, you know, they have hundreds of patients. So unless you're that assertive fish um, swimming to the top, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this increases their capacity. They're able to see the aspects of the Chrysalis curriculum as well. They're able to see, you know, who's assigned to what and the the workflow within the app. So meaning, oh, okay, um, this is a vulnerability here. Um, this is what needs to happen. And th- there's no silo anymore. There's no lack of accountability. And there's that um, deeper engagement and connection and visibility to see, okay, how can I make sure that this patient is, you know, staying on that continuum of care? Yeah. So we're really excited about it. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I think <laughs> I, I just, I'm so excited for patients to have that resource and, mm-hmm. and That's to, right. yeah. to put clinicians in the hot seat and be like, yes. this, is, this is happening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we are watching <laughs> and it matters. Yep. And that's the other thing we're talking about and putting out there um, within the app, their experiences with certain, you know, health systems. You know, if you're a Black woman, you want to have that ability to know, hey, if I go to this um, cancer center, um, which doctors should I go to? Which one should I avoid? It's kind of like a roadmap. Yeah. Say, yeah. It's, you know, kind of like back in the day during the civil rights movement where there were certain places you could go to and others you wanted to avoid. Yep. Same, Same deal. Got your own little green book. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yep. So uh, when you do an equity assessment, um, w- how do you gather the information that you gather and how do you present it and sort of, you know, what do you, what do you demand of a facility when you say like, if we're going to do this, these are the yeah. people who need to be engaged and like right. how does that go down. So we do establish like who's going to be involved on their side and our side. A lot of times they do already have a committee that's set up. Um, and then um, we're really interfacing with the uh, team that has the touch points with breast cancer patients. Okay. And so once we establish, is this going to be the full on, you know, meaning the full health system? Or are we going to do a small pilot? Uh-huh. We determine that. And then a lot of times we're just um, analyzing the data that they already utilize and report on. Um, so we make sure that it's, you know, um, um, uh, HIPAA compliant and confidential yeah. and high level, nothing identifiable. And you're you looking know. at like survival rates, diagnosis rates. Right. Um, okay. ER visits, okay. progression, recurrence, uh-huh. um, uh, missed appointments. Um, like, so we get really granular into the data. Yeah. And um, a lot of times it's just the same data. And then as the pilot starts, we're comparing the ones that are participating in the pilot and then also their standard data in comparison to the ones that are not involved in the pilot. So white patients and also the black patients that are not involved in the pilot. And then if we can, we try to get the um, you know historical data as well, if they're willing to share that. And then we get to the qualitative data, which is the focus groups. Yeah. <laughs> so what, so the focus groups are with patients and providers, separate ones? patients and staff. Okay. So, okay. And also so people that are involved in the care delivery. So this could be supportive service providers, um, community organizations that they work with, um, anyone who's involved. We also check to see which vendors they're using. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, because then people there, they always say, well, what does that have to do with our 
you know, <laughs> care delivery, but it does, it's an indicator as to how committed you are to your fiscal investment and to ensuring that you have diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah. Wow. I bet people do not like that. Yeah. A lot of, if you think about it, a lot of the data that we're asking for also is outside of what the standard accreditation is, you know. So like, for instance, the health literacy of patients, we consider that to be a metric Um, and the knowledge of the patient to be able to speak in layman's terms. This is my type of breast cancer. This is how it was diagnosed. This is how it was treated. This is how the treatment works. They should be able to speak to that easily. And if they can't, that's a that's to us that's a flag that we could have some disparity yeah. <laughs> you know a disparity flag so meaning there's some bias probably going on there that we kind of have to unpack and figure out what that underlying issue is yeah. and typically we're able to demonstrate that there's some bias going on there in the experience with a number of patients and that this area does have to be strong in order to reduce the level of disparities that you have at your center. And this is typically not something that health systems are measured on. And so they say, well, it's not our fault if the patient is, (laughs) you know? Yeah. So that's a perfect example of one that we get pushed back on. Yeah. And so do you, um, and maybe this is part of what you were saying, but like, do you look at like readability of materials and like, or how the, how that information is conveyed? Yeah. 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 We'd look at that and, you know, it's basically um, once we're said and done, they have to replicate our model, you know, because people um, learn differently. It has to be a team-based system and that care coordination has to happen where all um, team members are involved and everybody knows what everybody, you know, so meaning you can't just assume that up oh, the nurse navigator is going to handle that or the, right. <laughs> the uh, right. So a lot of that happens too, where people yeah. are working in silos and they're like, well, I'm just checking off my list and I'm doing what I need to do. Um, I can't really think about what else is going on, but you do have to, you do have to have that team-based care coordination in order to make sure that the patient is receiving optimal care. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, I, I think about how <laughs> there's so many, I mean, I think about in palliative care, like when a patient yes. has an emotional outburst, the doctor goes, hang on, let me get the social worker. Right. And, and you know, and I'm thinking about when you, when you do an equity assessment at a mm-hmm. very likely Mostly, I mean, even in a primarily black community, yes. there's a really good chance that the leaders in the hospital are white, that the hospital has a sort of a white history, and that it's sort of like when you're decluttering your house for the first like week, it looks awful because yeah. everywhere you look, there's crap you haven't looked at. And you're like, oh, why did we even do this? I know. And that's the other thing, too. They get a little worrisome. Yeah. Like, oh, my God, you're going to show. Right. It's everywhere. Yeah, exactly. And we're really saying that we're committed to improving in these areas. So meaning that we're not trying to, you know, jam you up or get you sued or anything like that. But status quo is just not acceptable anymore. No. And, you know, for you to just chalk this up to social economic issues and that's it without dealing without dealing with the um, racism and bias that's underlying here. Yeah. You have to deal with that. Yes. That's really, that's really it. Just understand and acknowledge that the bias and racism is there and you have to have that accountability there. Otherwise it's just going to still run rampant and cause harm to patients. Yeah. Well, and I, I, 
71% more likely to die. Like that's not a negligible statistic. Right. I mean, how I want that to be compelling. And I know for everybody, but this, this is not a trick of statistics. Like that's a lot of people. Yes. And Mm -hmm. yeah, we have to fix this. And I, I feel like in comparison to such a, a large statistic, the changes that actually could change that. I know. Yeah. (laughs) That's what gets me because to me, I kind of felt like we've had these breast cancer organizations around for like 40, 50 years, you know, and I'm a patient and as an advocate, I just kept hearing, Oh, well, you know, breast cancer is bad. It's really, really bad for black women. And just, it's just, it's sad. It's it's what it is. (laughs) And so, how much of that, how much of that um, is in, you know, I mean, I think so many of us thought when like when President Clinton announced the human genome project and that we're all 99.9% the same and that like these genetic differences that we imagine really aren't. Yeah. I, I think so many of us thought, well, phew, thank God that's over. But <laughs> I, I think people hear these statistics and they say, oh, well, black people are just more genetically susceptible. Oh, yes. Like we get that a lot. It's yeah, like yeah. It's biological differences. Even from physicians. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. They always tell us it's biological differences. And actually, it's possible. Meaning like there are some biological differences. Uh-huh. Meaning like, for instance, Black women, we tend to exhibit glutamine more so in our cancer. Um, we become drug resistant to chemo more so. Okay. We have neuropathy more so. There are some biological differences, uh-huh. but it's Help, but it's still not the overarching largest contributor as to the disparities. Yeah, I do think that has to be studied more, of course, to have more targeted, more suitable treatments for us. And yeah. that's why it is important to have, you know, more um, Black participation in clinical trials and research, of course. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that, oh, it's just biological. Yeah. <laughs> bad sorry exactly no the research shows it's the racism and the bias that has to be disrupted well and for you guys to be able to and i'm sure the app will really help with this to be able to look over time at like wow so this thing isn't as much of an issue anymore and now we're seeing this or you know yeah it's so exciting to Mm -hmm. to be able to do that and to just every time every single time every so far every single time (laughs) you just deal with this and everything gets better. Yeah. The outcomes of the black patients mirror the white ones. Yeah. Even just after six months. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. Let's just put a magnify put a magnifying glass and a spotlight on that. Right. Tighten that up. And so you gotta do is the difference between life and death. I mean it literally is. That yeah. And saving so many lives. Definitely. Yeah. And, and restoring quality of life and that, you know, yeah. You know, man. Uh, Yeah. 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 (laughs) Like we've got to grow. We've got to do this. And I mean, it's a lot of bureaucracy. It's a lot of, uh, we don't want to, we don't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> we want to stick to the status quo. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that, there is some anti-racism in public health legislation that's kind of coming down the pike. And I think NCI and NIH is looking at this really closely as, and even the FDA, how do we make sure that equity is built in, um, but also that the racism and bias is being addressed? Yeah. You can't just chalk this up to human behavior right? and hope it works out if we just kumbaya. I think we're at the point now where we understand 
this stuff isn't changing. You have to have that accountability there. Yeah. And that there are, I mean, we talk a lot about social determinants of health, but there are really serious political determinants of health. Yes. Policy mm-hmm. is, oh, is informed yes. by bias. And so, <laughs> right. Practice informs policy and policy informs practice. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of, that's the reason why there hasn't been a lot of movement because of that lack of policy. You know, why, why should we do anything different? It's too astronomical. It's just too much. Yeah. You know, but actually um, it really isn't that complicated. No. Right. You know? And like you said, the savings of life and money yes. are so quickly realized. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, it's not like we have to look in 20 years, it'll be so much right. better. Like, no, like three now. months ago. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I really think instead of, you know, throwing spaghetti at the wall and just having all these random things that you can point to, yeah, we had a town hall and then we have another committee and we had sent our mission statement and we got all these things going on. And then we have another focus group and then this group over here. I mean, literally, we we work with this one health system where it's like, when I say they have they have tons of stuff you could point to that is disparities and diversity and equity and inclusion related. And it's just so many different activities and they have a VP, a vice president. That's <laughs> a oh, D&I vice president. I mean, just everything um, under the sun, but their outcomes are still horrible. <laughs> yeah. All well, the resources are going into the committees. <laughs> so it's like, um, are you doing a cost benefit analysis here to see like, okay, if we're just throwing stuff at the wall, is any of this working? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, I think that's one of the things that was so impressive to me when I, um, when I learned about the Chrysalis Initiative and I looked at how young the organization was and how the kind of metrics and impact you were already having. Yeah. We're data driven. Uh, yeah, yeah. These people are like actually doing the stuff. Yes. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's based off of, you know, um, evidence, data, research. Yes. You- <laughs> crazy. Like, crazy, I say. <laughs> you nut. You know, like uh-huh. the data, evidence, research. Yep. You know. So, yeah. Wow. Um, I just hope that more and more um, utilize us in yeah. order to make this difference. And it's funny because we're only working on breast cancer, but we get, we're, once that the turnaround is demonstrated, they're like, well, where's your program on prostate cancer and colon cancer? Totally, yeah. <laughs> and do you guys, do you anticipate expanding into other cancers or is your, your plate full enough with breast cancer? Right now we're focused on breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have the student training program, which is for high school and college where they're um, exposed to the equity you know, um, career shadowing and all of that. And they get that experience. So even predominantly white schools, meaning that they understand the systemic racism and bias and how that comes into play. Um, But um, it's interesting. Now we're getting requests for, you know, medical school for the training to be provided there. You know, so we're we're definitely looking at it. Um, You know, we actually have, um, you know, the folks that are more educated about like the business planning and all of that. Yeah. <laughs> Looking at that, but they definitely um, are thinking that that could be something we could do maybe in five, five years or three years, Yeah, you know, but the, de- the need is so great for the breast cancer, Oh, for you sure. know? Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, they're already like, well, where's your program for prostate? And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, like, oh, disenfranchisement everywhere. Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is just due to now we're very, we have a lot of research and data, of course, on the breast cancer. But I really do think that the curriculum, if we do go into those other areas, we would have to quantify what are, you know, because we know specifically like standard of care metrics in breast right. cancer. Sure. Um, and then basically um, analyzing that, checking that and ensuring that, okay, if we didn't meet that metric, how does the bias and equity come into play? We can actually quantify that, demonstrate that, measurable areas, data sets, all of that. We would have to do the same level of analysis and research for those other cancers because I'm sure, you know, it's all different. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, there are disparities, but yeah, where right. are they? What are they? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, for instance, um, with um, breast cancer, we know that ideally from that first um, presentation of symptoms, they should have um, treatment that's targeted and specific to their breast cancer within 42 days. Like that's a hard metric that we could check and be like, mm, yeah. did that happen? Yeah, <laughs> right. And if it didn't, what happened? You know, right. so it could be different for um, prostate and colon and yeah. those other areas. Wow. So, so people who are listening, obviously they can go to chryslisinitiative.org. Uh, what, um, are there things that you wish people knew about what you guys do or that we can do to help spread the word about this amazing? Yeah, I think, um, if, uh, if you have any connection with the health system or cancer center or a clinical trial, are they using chrysalis? If not, why not? Yeah. <laughs> um, cause I really do feel that if you are a chrysalis center, meaning that you are utilizing the model um, because once we do the equity assessment, it's ongoing. So meaning yeah. we're, um, that relationship is there where you are opted into utilizing the chrysalis model and we're still measuring that data to make sure that you're on track and that your numbers stay on track where your disparities are now, if not eliminated, reduced. And so we wanna keep that going. And if you are committed to reducing and addressing disparities, why not? Are yeah. you, Why are you not? Yeah. <laughs> Chrysalis Center at this point. Okay. Um, and then if you know anyone that could benefit from a coach, a Chrysalis coach, definitely send them our way. And please support. We can't do this without funding. Yes, indeed. <laughs> okay. And do you guys, uh, like I'm thinking about one of the centers we work at where there is a lot of uh, diversity in terms of there are a lot of Latinx patients, a lot of Asian patients. Do you look at those disparities as well or do you focus specifically on Black? No, we, we focus on all disparate groups. So Latinx, rural, Medicaid, Medicare, oh, cool. um, okay. Asian. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, as always with our guests, I could ask you a million more questions, but this is incredible and um, really uh, hope inducing. So thank you for, uh, for being with us. And I'm an optimist, natural optimist. Excellent. <laughs> we need more of those. All right. Well, thanks for being with us today, Jamil. This has been another episode of Interdisciplinary, the Heal Well Healthcare podcast, where we talk about all the sticky issues that are out there getting in the way of good care, good outcomes, and good quality of life. Make sure you use your social media might. Go like us, share us, tweet us, all the things that the kids are doing these days. Uh, leave us a review, give us some stars, and uh, we'll see you next week. We've got a great season lined up for you, season two, and uh, it's off to a good start. Thanks so much. Thank you. Interdisciplinary is produced by Healwell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. You can send us feedback at info at healwell.org. That's info at healwell.org. New episodes will be posted weekly. 
via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our Facebook page. Thank you. If you enjoy interdisciplinary, you should check out Healwell's new show, The Rub, a podcast about massage therapy. You can click the link in the show notes or find The Rub wherever you listen to podcasts. See you there.